Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. It's Friday, April 4th, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Chris Mooney. And I'm Indre Viscontis. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and on Facebook at Slash Inquiring Minds Podcast. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Swell, or any other podcasting app. This episode of Inquiring Minds is sponsored by the International Rescue Committee, leading the way from harm to home for millions uprooted and threatened by conflict, disaster, and persecution. You can learn more about the IRC's life-saving programs in the U.S. and 40 countries around the world at rescue.org. So this show is about one of my favorite topics, the science of political ideology. Basically, it's about how ideological differences aren't just about ideas. They're about personalities, psychologies, physiologies, biologies, even genes. There's now a pretty significant body of research showing that this is the case. So to discuss it all, I invited on John Hibbing. He's a political scientist at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln who has pioneered research on the physiological differences between liberals and conservatives, literally their involuntary responses to stimuli and how there are different left-right patterns in these responses. And all of this is summarized in a new book that Hibbing just wrote with two co-authors entitled Predisposed, Liberals, Conservatives, and the Biology of Political Differences. It's pretty mind-blowing stuff. So here's a clip from our interview. We know that liberals and conservatives are really deeply different on a variety of things. It's, you know, it, it runs from their tastes to their cognitive patterns, kind of how they think about things, what they pay attention to, to, yeah, their, their physical reaction. You know, well, we can measure their sympathetic nervous system, which is the fight or flight system. And liberals and conservatives tend to respond very differently to different things. And there are even some hints that there are genetic differences, although the whole genetic structure of the human being is so complicated that, that you know, we're unlikely to be able to tease that out with any specificity. But, but the fact that there are genetic differences seems to be pretty clear. So there is a danger always when we talk about genetic differences that people start thinking that, that you know, you're born this way and there's no way to change it, right? And so right. I always worry when I hear that, it's a little bit like saying men's and women's brains are morphologically different, right? <laughs> Which, of course, we can find differences. But, you know, the genes, of course, act in an environment. Even the social context into which you're born is going to affect how your genes are going to be expressed. So, you know, I think that's something that we need to think about while we listen to this research, um, but also the fact that this finding is, 
you know, available in so many different domains is really compelling. Right. I think that, and, you know, Hibbing will say that genes and environment are contributing and actually a small genetic difference uh, could be reinforced through the environment and get to be a big difference. Absolutely. So that'll be our interview for today. But first, let's talk about some science in the news. And you might have seen some pretty remarkable headlines in the last few weeks claiming things like second baby cured of AIDS. And you might think, that's awesome. But why are they trying out a new therapy on babies? <laughs> Is it because they're so vulnerable? Seems strange. You know, often kids are the last to benefit from experimental treatments. But to understand why, we need to back up a bit and remind ourselves of how AIDS works. So you might remember that AIDS starts out as the human immunodeficiency virus, HIV, that targets immune cells, T cells specifically, by binding to them and then inserting its own DNA. And then it turns the cells into virus factories, and over time, these build up a reservoir of clones, while at the same time decimating the person's immune system. So eventually, the patient transitions to AIDS, and then is susceptible to all kinds of infections, one of which eventually kills him or her. So the current treatment of HIV keeps this reservoir at bay by preventing the virus from replicating with such gusto. So the patients remain in the HIV state for many years if they can tank up consistently on antiretroviral drugs, which of course are expensive and onerous. But in 2007, a German hematologist reported a case study of a guy who's now called the Berlin patient, who, in addition to HIV, developed leukemia. Now, he needed a bone marrow transplant to, you know, help his leukemia or cure his leukemia. But since the bone marrow is where all immune cells are created, his hematologist had an idea. Now, there are some people who seem to be naturally resistant to HIV. They have a genetic mutation that makes the receptors on their T cells incompatible with the virus. So the virus has virtually no effect on them. And what if, Hutter, I think that's how you pronounce it, the hematologist thought the bone marrow came from just such a HIV-resistant person? And miraculously, he found a donor. You know, it's not an easy task. But the next step was just as critical. After the transplant, instead of going back on the antiretrovirals, as his docs suggested, the Berlin patient's partner actually said to him, look, why don't you just let the bone marrow do its job and create a new immune system for you instead of trying to pump it full of these chemicals? And luckily, it worked. He's been HIV-free now for years. There's no trace of HIV in his body. So essentially, we can call him cured. So why don't we just pump people with the right T-cells, right? You know, well, the reason is, is because HIV patients already have the reservoir of virus clones just waiting to be released. So that wouldn't work. So why don't all HIV patients then get these bone marrow transplants? Well, because they're risky, right? So a third of transplant patients die, and it's expensive, and it's hard to find matches. But this Berlin patient gave scientists another idea, and this is where the babies come in. The bone marrow essentially gave the Berlin patient a new immune system. And babies are just developing there. So what if babies born with HIV were given a strong dose of antiretroviral drugs right at the beginning to prevent the virus from building up the reservoir in the first place? And it seems to be working. So these are the headlines, baby cured of AIDS. So we're a ways yet for a cure from everyone, but this seems to be a particularly exciting time, especially for those of us who remember the start of the epidemic and the pessimism that surrounded it. Right. And I remember the start. I, everybody remembers Magic Johnson has AIDS. Magic Johnson, this was 1992 or something. He's still alive. You know, we, we've gone uh, so far, it seems like, in managing this disease. It's it's really kind of incredible. Yeah. So Magic Johnson was my favorite basketball player. I was a huge fan. I was number 32 in high school, etc. And I remember the day he got 
that he announced his diagnosis, I shed a lot of tears thinking that he was going to die. And like, here he is still around, right. you know, still, still Just very much alive. Just won an award for being a very successful business person. Actually, I was reading about him. Yeah, he's... Yeah, he's all over the NCAA right now in March Madness. So anyway, there is a lot of hope. Um, and of course, the, the sort of ethical issue is how are we going to get this to Africa where it sort of is needed the most? Right, this stuff doesn't sound cheap. Just listening. I mean, I can't put a price on it, but it doesn't sound cheap. Not cheap yet, but, you know, we're getting closer every day. So I've found a story uh, for you at the Art Science Interface I think you're going to enjoy. It turns out that in a new study, a team of researchers based in Greece and Germany have analyzed 124 classic paintings of sunsets. Paintings by great artists like J.M.W. Turner, all of his paintings at the Tate Gallery, that's where a lot of the research was done, and Caspar David Friedrichs and a number of others. These paintings were all between the years 1500 and 2000, and they correlated the depiction of the sunsets with the atmosphere at the time of the work based on whether there'd been a major volcanic eruption recently, you know, close to when the painting was done, because volcanoes They change the atmosphere dramatically. They eject particles that are called sulfate aerosols into there, into the atmosphere. And these aerosols scatter sunlight and reflect it away from the planet. And that leads, leaves the sky more reddish. So when people say, let's geoengineer the climate, let's put artificially sulfate aerosols into the atmosphere. Everyone says, well, you're going to have different sunsets. They're going to be redder. That's one of the side effects of that. And so volcanoes do the same thing. So sure enough, the study found that long before we understood the science of this, artists were picking this up. And you could actually tell the the, the reds that they were using um, were different if it was close to a volcanic eruption. So these classic paintings contain what the uh, study authors call environmental information in them. And then they've, they further verified this finding by actually conducting an experiment in which a Greek painter painted two sunsets on the island of Hydra. One was during and one was after a Saharan dust storm went by. And again, the painted sunsets were different redder during the storm. So art really can be science. And this, I just want to finally say, this is in an open access journal, Atmospheric Chemistry and Physics. Anybody can read it. So Chris, is this finally scientific reasons for why we shouldn't have abstract art? Maybe so. You know, but you know what? Um, I don't know if you would call it abstract, but the, the famous painting that everybody knows by Munch, The Scream, has this red sunset in it. And apparently that was also volcanically influenced. Huh. Okay, so let's take a short break, and we'll be back with my interview with John Hibbing. I wanted to let you know that this show is sponsored by the International Rescue Committee, providing medical care, clean water, education, and other assistance to millions uprooted by crisis in Syria, South Sudan, and around the world. Join Rescue Partners, the IRC's monthly giving program, and receive a tote bag. Learn more at rescue.org. John Hibbing, welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm happy to be with you, Chris. I'm happy to have you. I love this topic, and I'm glad to be getting back to it again on the show. So you study the psychology and, frankly, I would say the biology of politics. And so at the outset, let's face it, there's plenty of resistance to this line of research. What do you say to tell people that it has a sort of clean bill of health, if you will? Well, that's difficult because I think the the opposition comes from many different places, and it's all kind of different. The conservatives tend to think this is just a bunch of liberal academics out to make them look like they're, you know, genetically flawed, and and liberals tend not to like the idea that 
people are it's kind of difficult to change. They'd rather there be more more flux. And then I think everybody just likes to believe that their own political beliefs are you know, rational and, and came from very sensible sources and that they're not the product of kind of hidden biases. So, you know, it's, it's a bit of a tough message, and I understand why. I, it's, it's just not something that we like to think about ourselves. We'd, we'd rather we be a little bit different, but, of course, sometimes the human condition just uh, doesn't, you know, doesn't support human sensibilities. I got it. So let's boil down some of the most important findings just as a baseline. I mean, what do you know about left and right or liberals and conservatives as a consequence of this research that we didn't know beforehand and that, frankly, few people are uh, aware of this research still? Well, I guess the first and most generally, I think we know that liberals and conservatives are really deeply different on a variety of things. It's, you know, it, it runs from their tastes to their cognitive patterns, kind of how they think about things, what they pay attention to. To yeah, their their physical reaction. You know, well, we can measure their sympathetic nervous system, which is the fight or flight system. Would and liberals and conservatives tend to respond very differently to different things. And there are even some hints that there are genetic differences, although the whole genetic structure of the human being is so complicated that that you know we're unlikely to be able to tease that out with any specificity. But but the fact that there are genetic differences seems to be pretty clear. So it's just kind of all up and down the gamut. And I think it's it's maybe the totality. Uh, of this picture that's coming together now. We've had census that that liberals and conservatives are different in ways beyond their politics for a long time. But but I think it's kind of exciting time to study this because there is, you know, for the first time, there's kind of a a mass, sufficient mass of people looking at this from different perspectives. And and the answers tend to converge much more pleasantly than is usually the case in science. Mm -hmm. And just to emphasize that this is going mainstream, I mean, one of your papers showing this was published in Science, which is one of sort of the most influential publications that there is. Yeah, that was that was a, a very fortunate thing for us because it it's, wasn't the kind of paper that Science usually publishes. And, uh, you know, having been through that experience, I can say that, that people at a journal like that really put you through the ringer. That went through like, you know, seven stages of things and statisticians had to look at the research. But, uh, yeah, you're right. That, that was, you know, uh, I think a, a boost in terms of getting a broader community to take this kind of research seriously. So I want to read you a short verse. This is from a Gilbert and Sullivan opera, Iolanthe, from 1882. You probably know the quote already, but I'm asking you to react to it. So someone sings, I don't know, I haven't seen this opera, but uh, I often think it's comical how nature always does contrive that every boy and every gal that's born into the world alive is either a little liberal or else a little conservative, if I can just bend the rhymes a little bit. So basically, you know, they're they're saying um, the same thing you're saying, but they're saying it back in 1882. So it's not like they had the equipment you now have. I mean, people were onto this. I think that's right. And, and you know, this is one of many places, really, where I, I think maybe the lay community has a better intuition than academics. And uh, academics have been much more resistant to this than um, than a lot of people who are just ordinary thinkers, who are just out there observing things. And they recognize that, that liberals and conservatives really do seem to, to kind of approach the world differently. You know, we, we like a line by Groucho Marx, which is kind of similar to this. It's saying that everybody's the same except for Democrats and Republicans. So, you know, I think folk wisdom has, has really bought into this better than, than the scientific community. But uh, hopefully that's beginning to change. Well, while we're throwing around quotes, I have one more here for you that I really like. This is Thomas Jefferson, one of the founders of the country. He wrote the following. The terms Whig and Tory 
belong to natural as well as civil history. They denote the temper and constitution of mind of different individuals. Now, I don't know a lot about Whigs and Tories, but I know Tories were more conservative. So Jefferson is also basically saying it. I hadn't heard that one before. So thank you. I'm, I'm sure I'm going to steal that at some point because that's, uh, that's right. You know, I, I think and, and this goes back to your previous question, maybe about why there is some resistance to this. And I think some people just look around and they say, well, you know, the politics of the United States is so different than the politics of India or Austria or Australia. And the politics of the United States now is different than it was 100 years ago. So how could there be any any of this kind of natural component that Jefferson speaks of? And uh, so I think it's important to point out that there are, at least in our view, the kind of basic bedrock dilemmas that any society is going to have to face uh, about how are we going to have a leadership structured and how are we going to orient ourselves to outgroups and how are we going to distribute resources? So if you think about it in those terms, then I think Jefferson's quote is right on, that, that there are these very deep and basic differences um, because we've had to face the problems throughout, and people have different different views on how to face these very deep bedrock principles, regardless of the kind of specific issues of the day and these labels that we put on, whether it's Whig or Tory, liberal or conservative. You know, they change, but I think these basic dilemmas don't. So let's get further into the actual research. Um, yeah, as I said, you published in Science and in other publications and doing uh, what you term political physiology. And you found something called a negativity bias um, using these sort of eye tracker experiments. Can you explain uh, what that means so we can really see one of the one of the left right differences really borne out in a little detail? Sure, I will do my best. So, um, an eye tracker is a pretty neat gizmo, and you, you, you attach it, not surprisingly, over the eyes, and it allows you to find out exactly where a research participant is looking. Usually, it's at a computer screen, and these are very popular with web designers, so they know exactly where to put the trailers and things to maximize viewing. Uh, we're using it for more academic purposes. We we just like to find out uh, the kinds of images that people look at. So we put up what we call a collage, but it really was just uh, quadrants. So there are four different images on the computer screen of equal size. And some of these will be positive. And uh, fortunately, there's a, a series of images, thousands of images that have been put together by academics, and then they've been pre-rated, so we know what people tend to think of these. So we know, for example, that pictures of angels and and uh, attractive fruit, like a uh, or attractive food, like a fruit basket, or just people having a good time, those tend to be rated very highly by people. They're positive. Then there are neutral images, like pictures of a pencil or a toaster, just something that doesn't really trip your trigger one way or the other. And then negative images tend to be either disgusting or threatening. You know, we we like to use disgust because it's much easier to show a picture to someone and have them be disgusted than to have them be threatened because usually threatening images are like of a, a lady with a knife to her neck and you know, a bad guy right by her. Well, you know, that raises some questions. Who's really threatened there? You, you're seeing a picture of somebody who's threatened, but you know you're just looking at that. Are you really threatened? But disgust, on the other hand, you show somebody a picture of, of an individual throwing up or, or many other disgusting things, cockroaches on food and they, they're really disgusted. So we have put up these positive and negative images, and then the eye tracker allows us to know how quickly people look at varying parts of that image and how long they stay. To make a long story short, uh, we find that conservatives tend to uh, focus much more quickly on the negative images, and then once they're there, they also tend to dwell on them longer. And the difference is really very substantial uh, in terms of time. Uh, liberals um, 
uh, are about equal. Uh, they, they don't, you know, you might think there'd be a, an inverse relationship here so that liberals are looking at the positive and conservatives at the negative. It's really conservatives look at the negative. Liberals are pretty much equally balanced between the others. So uh, that may be a little more than you bargained for, but that's just a, a quick discussion of, of uh, one of the ways that we think it's, it's pretty clear that liberals and conservatives are paying attention to different things in terms of what's positive and what's negative. Now, I think that's just the right level of depth. And I guess I would say then, if you then interpret this, you know, you write in the book that they experience and process different worlds. This suggests that they're actually going through the world and slightly differently perceiving it. What is the, what is the implication of that? Well, yeah, I think, you know, if you and I have different fundamental political views and, and we could be exposed to the same stimuli, you know, read the same stories, um, you know, maybe you've had this experience watching a political debate with somebody who disagrees with you and you you discuss it afterwards. And it's like, you know, did we watch the same debate? And in some respects, you didn't. And, and you know, I think that's what this research indicates, not just with regard to political stimuli, but all kinds of things. You know, people look at faces. You know, we haven't done this research, but other scholars have where they they'll show angry faces or neutral faces or, or happy faces. And uh, conservatives tend to rate the, the angry ones much angrier. And the, the interesting thing is the neutral faces, really. Conservatives tend to say those neutral faces are uh, angry or fearful. And liberals will tend to say those neutral faces are happy or uh, maybe surprised, something like that. So, uh, you know, those are objectively neutral faces, but yet liberals and conservatives are looking at it really differently. So, you know, for us, it just seems kind of natural that if we are experiencing the world in these different fashions, that that could lead to different kinds of preferences for how social life should be structured. And that's what politics is. Conservatives maybe are more eager to spend a lot on defense to have harsher punishment for criminals, to maybe support stand your ground laws because the world's a more dangerous place given the way that they experience it. But then this is only one of the differences that have been found. I mean, I think this is a very telling one because you what's what's strong about this one is that it doesn't seem sort of subjective. I mean, it's it's an automatic response in a way looking at these images. So it's not that they're they're giving a self-report of how, how they see themselves. They're actually just responding. But in other in other studies, they also rate themselves as having different personalities and other things like that. That's true. And that's, you know, maybe a little bit of the uh, older style of research um, before people, I think, were taking advantage of things like eye trackers and the, uh, the physiological equipment that we use. They still found pretty important differences. And that was just with regard to how liberals and conservatives perceive themselves. And I think I'm glad you brought it up because this is important because sometimes, you know, people are saying we're trying to make people look one way or the other. Well, the truth of the matter is they make themselves look one way or the other when they answer these questions. Conservatives pretty consistently uh, report their personality traits as being uh, more in line with the conscientiousness. And liberals, on the other hand, are more likely to report themselves being open to new experiences. Mm -hmm. Tell us what conscientiousness is, though, because that one, that one can be a little confusing in terms of what it means for people. Um, well, it just means, you know, you, you like to, uh, have things wrapped up before you go home for work, let's, uh, from work, let's say. Um, there's a, a variety of questions that they ask that just indicate that you kind of, uh, prefer things to be wrapped up and neat and, uh, you're kind of goal oriented. Uh, whereas with liberals, they're finding a little bit more experientially, uh, orientation, uh, there. Uh, a related study that was done by John Jost and his colleagues. Um, actually looked uh, at people's living spaces with permission. They, they went into bedrooms and dorm rooms and office spaces and recorded what they found there without knowing the people's political beliefs. And uh, then it turned out that there was a clear pattern. Conservatives were more likely to have kind of uh, sewing thread and laundry baskets and their rooms were neat uh, and orderly. 
um, and whereas liberals tended to be a little bit messier and they had more you know, movie stubs and uh, CDs and books laying around and art supplies. So, uh, you know, I think that takes it to the next level. It's not just how they self-report, but how they structure their, their living environments as right. well. They go out and have all these experiences and then they don't bother to clean up after themselves. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Those are our friends, the liberals. Okay, well, let's, let's go on to, and this is, this is the area that really blows people's mind, is the genetics. So you have also been publishing some of these genetic studies of left and right and use a methodology called twin studies. Maybe if you could unpack that one a little bit, too, because it's also a really cool methodology that's very important in many fields of science. Very important and also still uh, quite controversial. So, um, you know, I think we need to recognize that right off the bat that uh, when we study the genetics of humans, we really can't do a lot of the things that are available to geneticists who study fruit flies or yeast. Um, so, you know, we can engage in selective breeding, which is a very powerful technique. You know, you can see genetics are important if you can, can kind of have two uh, organisms that you want breed with, with each other. Or you can gene splice. Right? So both of these things are just not ethically permissible with regard to humans. So we have to kind of fall back on naturally occurring experiments. Uh, and these are poor substitutes, but, you know, again, given the ethical limitations, they make sense. Uh, one of these would be adoption studies. You know, ba the basic goal here is to pull apart the environment that's created for a person and the genetics that are provided for a person. And since for most individuals who are reared by the people who provided the genetic heritage, that is their biological parents, you can't really do that. You, you can't disambiguate those two forces. But with adoptees, you can because they've been raised by someone who did not provide the genetic material. But uh, as you mentioned, probably the most popular design um, that is, you know, ethically permissible with humans involves twin studies. And, and these are driven by the situation that, uh, or by the fact that we have two very different types of twins. And so the, the one twin is sometimes called fraternal, but the, the scientific name is dizygotic because this occurs when one sperm fertilizes one egg and a second sperm fertilizes a second egg. And you basically have, have two separate pregnancies that are happening at the same time. Um, so the, the, genetic heritage of dizygotic twins is no more similar than any full sibling pair. It's just that they happen to be born at the same time. Contrast that with monozygotic twins where uh, there is a single zygote. One sperm fertilizes one egg, uh, and it's one zygote for several days usually. And uh, then for reasons that are still not fully understood, a twinning event occurs, and that zygote splits. So since it was at one point the same zygote, that means that even with the split, the you know, the genetic heritage is the same. So uh, for all intents and purposes, these are identical twins. So the interesting thing is to compare the similarity of pairs of MZ twins, monozygotic twins are identical, with the fraternal twins. And uh, if, if you do that and you find a difference, if you find that the uh, monozygotic twins are more similar, then that's kind of the first step in, in, uh, in uh, believing that there is a genetic component to this. It's very popular, like the breast cancer, for example, as soon as they found out that uh, that these uh, identical twins were much more likely to either both have or both not have breast cancer than dizygotic twins, then they said, okay, we've got to go to the next level because there is clearly a genetic component here. So it's a first step, and um, we and several other teams of scholars have done that with regard to politics, and sure enough, it turns out that monozygotic twins are much more similar in their political views. They're either both liberal, both conservative, both independent, whereas dizygotic twins uh, you know, they're more likely to be similar than any two randomly selected individuals, but they're still much less similar than, uh, than monozygotic twins. So this is kind of interesting. Some people don't believe in twin studies. Um, 
but I think most of the scientific community says at least it's it's indicative of of some genetic uh, influence. And just to just to put this in some context, it's great that you brought up breast cancer. You could also bring up something simpler like height. I mean, twin studies have been done for all kinds of traits, and I'm sure that something like height is more shared among uh, identical than among fraternal twins. Uh, is that? But that is something that is even more genetic than politics. Or could you just sort of compare politics to something like height, or or eye color, or hair color, or what sure. have you? No, that, that's. That's a good idea because yeah, uh, height is generally uh, taken to be about 80% heritable. So, and this again comes primarily from twin studies, um, and you know I, I think that squares with our observation of of individuals. Tall parents tend to have tall kids, so uh, everyone's known for a long time that that is heritable. And, and yeah, most of the heritability estimates are around 0.8. For politics, you're probably talking in the 0.3 to 0.4 range. And again, now don't get too, you know, persnickety about these figures because it's it does depend what population you use. But I'd say these studies have been done in so many parts of the world now that I think it's fair to say that that somewhere in that range uh, that we find the, the heritability coefficient. But but yeah, that's a good point. So that indicates that it's far less heritable than something like height, but really almost as heritable as many other personality traits like uh, extroversion or agreeableness or conscientiousness. So what do you think is being inherited? <laughs> what is the what is the entity? Uh, I mean, obviously, it's genes, but, you know, what are those genes doing? Do we, do we have any idea? Yeah, well, I mean, we uh, there's been some speculation, some early studies. You know, once once you're kind of beyond twin studies, it is possible to do what are known as candidate gene association studies, where you really say, all right, here's a gene that's relevant to a neurotransmitter. Maybe it's dopamine or maybe it's serotonin. And we think that maybe, you know, what do we know about liberals and conservatives? We know liberals are a little bit more experiential. They're going out and doing things. Well, we also know that there are some genes that are involved with things like attention deficit disorder uh, and risk taking. So some people have speculated maybe liberals are, you know, a little bit further down the line on that. Uh, and you have to be careful here because remember, the human condition is usually on a spectrum. So it's, it's, you don't have to say that liberals are. ADD, you can just say, you know, maybe they're a little bit closer to that end of the spectrum than, than conservatives. So uh, people are looking at those kinds of things. Um, you know, candidate gene association studies have not been very successful regardless of the topic. And I think the same would apply to politics as well. It's just here's where people are really scratching their heads and saying, wow, there are just so many genes involved and they interact with the environment that it's unlikely that we're going to be able to just identify a single gene and, and find some really neat association with politics. But what I think is happening is you've got a, a collection of things involved with, you know, some of these physiological things. That's, that's kind of why I'm attracted to the physiology. I see it as a middle stage between the politics and the genetics. And, and if genetics has an impact, it's probably going to be through some more more basic kind of thing, the way we see the world or the way we experience it, how our nervous system responds to it. So, uh, you know, I think there are probably subtle differences genetically in alleles that affect those kinds of things. And then I think the environment, once you start off that way, you know, you can really start to kind of build up. If, if I'm a little bit more attentive to dangerous things, maybe I avoid dangerous things. And maybe then, you know, that, that just expands or exacerbates um, my attitude toward those things. So I think you can start with kind of little genetic differences that then expand. There's a neat study on reading, for example, that people who have genetic differences in reading ability, uh, at least according to this theory, are very small. But, you know, if you're a good reader and I'm not, you know, you're probably going to 
read more and practice more and, and get better at it. And I'm going to kind of stay away from it because I'm not keeping up with my colleagues. So you can start off with, with these small differences and they expand. And I kind of think that's probably what's happening in politics as well. So let's turn to to the area that I think is the most fraught, but it's the most interesting and it's an inevitable turn to take. Uh, in your book, uh, Taking a Page from Charles Darwin, you talk about the origin of subspecies, not the origin of species. So you, in a sense, are willing to talk about these results in an evolutionary context. Um, what What can one say about why politics is something inherited, something that seems to be part of human nature, and to have different aspects of it. Uh, in other words, that it's not just that, you know, that humans are political, but that there is variation in how humans are political. What is the evolutionary significance of that? Or can you say, what can you say about it? Well, yeah, I think you're right to, to present that as two very different things. I mean, the first one is simply that we know evolution has shaped how humans behave, uh, just as evolution has shaped, you know, our, our kind of physical features. So, so we, uh, you know, what has been useful to us uh, kind of sticks around and, and what isn't so useful drops out. Uh, that's just standard adaptation. And so Darwin was, you know, was very prescient in understanding that it's not just physical traits that matter, but that how we behave. You know, it's not just that a beaver has sharp teeth, but the beavers that are going to be adaptive, that are going to stick around and pass their genes along are going to be the ones that really have a good idea how to use those teeth to build dams and build lodges and things like that. So we see politics as part of that. The people who have been good in social units, uh, it seems to us, would, would uh, have a tremendous adaptive advantage throughout the years. You know, humans, in some respects, don't have really sharp claws. We can't run super fast over short distances, and we're not, you know, big and strong compared to a lot of other organisms. But what can we do? Well, we can live in social groups. We are amazing at that. And so, you know, probably long ago, not everybody was, and, and some dropped out, and, and those people had genes that weren't likely to be passed along. And we still see that occasionally. We see individuals that just don't fit well in society, and they don't do especially well. You know, the special consideration needs to be made for them. So, so we think that these social abilities kind of translated into politics, because uh, as, as social groups got bigger, then we needed to deal not just with our family, but we needed to understand how to handle these things, how to organize as a social unit. So it seems to us to be a kind of natural uh, follow-on from uh, from our ability to deal in, in smaller social units. Mm-hmm. I was just going to say that, okay, so that, I mean, and I think that that's not controversial, that we are a social, social primate, and there are other social primates right? um, that, that behave very similarly. But then the question is, why would we, why would some of us, do this thing differently than others, this political organizing? That's right. That's the $64 question. So so we're generally this way, but but now we see, okay, you know, liberals and conservatives, why, why do we have these different subspecies if we can kind of uh, oversell this just a little bit? And yeah, you know, we don't have a good answer to that. I, don't, it's, I, I think we've got some speculations. You know, we, we float the idea that, that maybe long ago when society was really brutal uh, in hunter-gatherer times, that, that maybe most people were conservative. It didn't it didn't play well. It didn't give you an advantage to be really open to new ideas because there were so many ways those new ideas could go wrong. And trusting the tribe over the hill could be a very dangerous thing. They take advantage of you. And that, that now we've seen selection pressures relaxed a little bit. So, um, you know, and this makes it, it doesn't make it that liberals maybe are adaptive, uh, but it just means that, that we can have all kinds of variation. And so it, 
evolutionary psychologists and biologists know that if you relax selection pressures, you're going to get a lot more variation. So one possibility is that, that it's, it's just, you know, now you don't have to be uh, conservative in order to survive. I'm reluctant to say that liberals or conservatives are more adaptive these days. Some people are trying to do that uh, and say, you know, this, this is um, going to be more optimal. But, um, you know, the, the trouble is when you get to evolution, and I know you've thought about this a lot yourself, uh, you know, you naturally have to become more speculative. And so that's why I'm couching this in terms of this is one possibility. The other possibility that I mentioned quickly is that it's really advantageous for a group to have a mixture of liberals and conservatives because then, you know, the, the conservatives are there to make sure you're not naively taken advantage of and the liberals are there to make sure that we at least, you know, uh, give a stab at trade and, and incorporating new ideas that could be very useful. Mm-hmm. And that's that's the one that you want to go for and yet you look at our political world and you find them um, – their differences playing out in a very dysfunctional way. And so it's kind of hard to square. But of course, you know, they didn't evolve for this political world. They evolved for a very different context. That's right. That's a really good point. Yeah. You know, if it's useful to have liberals and conservatives uh, together in the same group, why does it seem to be so not useful right now? And uh, yeah, I think that's a very good point. It may be, you know, modern society has just allowed us to indulge our political beliefs in a way that we never could before. I mean, the the existence of media outlets that, you know, that are oriented clearly to the left or to the right. Um, you know, people are segregating more and more in their residential communities. We've written a paper on assorted mating, even that liberals are marrying liberals and conservatives are marrying conservatives. Uh, and we tend to talk together with each other and that, you know, one ideology with, with their fellow ideologues and the other with theirs. And, you know, I think shopping is going to be what, what music we listen to. You know, nobody listens, nobody, no conservatives listen to the Dixie Chicks anymore. And liberals aren't shopping at Chick-fil-A. I just, I think that's probably going to continue. So, so it may be that society has structured us and or society allows us to, to kind of segregate in a way that, that is uh, a contributing factor to this dysfunction that you so accurately described. Well, I, I, the more I think about it, the more I think this makes a lot of sense. I mean, you're talking about left and right components potentially being good to both have in a group that is a relatively small group uh, where everybody kind of knows each other. And that is not at all the way it is anymore. I mean, liberals and conservatives don't like know each other anymore. They live in completely different places uh, and they do completely different things. So it's one thing to actually have this person be part of your small hunter-gatherer group and it might actually be great to have that diversity then. I think that's a good point. You know, it wouldn't be the first time that an evolutionary feature of a human being made more sense uh, back in the hunter-gatherer times than it does today. And, and yeah, maybe that, in fact, uh, Diana Mutz has written well about impersonal politics and that, that this day and age, you know, we're not, uh, we're, we're trying to make these decisions about social life with people that we don't know, that, that we only see on television. And, and that could be a very different critter, as you point out, than, than dealing with somebody in a face-to-face fashion. So there's another book out. Uh, it's called Our Political Nature by Avi Tuckman. I hope I'm saying his name right. It takes a lot of this way farther in the evolutionary direction. And one of his ideas, and I know you're familiar with the book. I'll just summarize it and then get your reaction. Uh, he says that liberalism and conservatism represent different reproductive strategies or reflect different reproductive strategies where liberals, you know, they're outgoing, trying all kinds of new things. That leads to wanting to bring in more genetic diversity, basically breeding with people who are more different from you. Uh, versus conservatives keeping it more close within a smaller group, uh, breeding with people who are more genetically similar. That doesn't mean extreme inbreeding. It just means overall more genetically similar. He has some other ideas as well. What do you make of uh, going down this this road? 
I think it's intriguing. I mean, certainly if you're looking for something very basic to to life, um, you know, reproductive procedures uh, are that. So, you know, that's been around a long time, even before we were social organisms. So, so I like that feature of it. If you're trying to kind of strip it down to see what's what's really basic, um, I think that's good. It, 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 you know, like our explanation, to some extent, it begs the issue of why we would have these very different orientations toward reproduction. You know, why do some people think we need to keep keep it within the group, and others say, no, you know, those other guys look pretty good too. So you, we still need to answer that. What what accounts for the variability there? But um, you know, I, I think it's a, it's an intriguing idea. Well, let's wrap up. I mean, we don't obviously have all the answers here. And when it comes to evolution, in some ways, you will never have all the answers just because you weren't there. What does it What does it mean for politics today uh, to be able to do this kind of research and then watch, you know, the if I can, you know, take a quote, the ignorant armies clash by night. In other words, they're, you know, they're fighting it out all the time in politics and taking over city centers or shutting down the government, mostly not aware of any of the things that you're saying. Um, what what does it mean today to be saying and doing this kind of research and how should it be applied uh, to a very polarized atmosphere? I guess uh, if I had my druthers, I, I wish people would take away from this the notion that they shouldn't expect to convert a lot of people on the other side. Now, there's one school of thought that if we can just get everybody together in a room and, and talk long enough that we're going to agree. And we just think that's fundamentally wrong, that, that these are some very basic orientations that sometimes if you bring them together in a room, it gets worse rather than better. So I think the notion that we can talk these problems to a solution is not correct, but I think we can compromise them. And in fact, I think that's the only way we can do this. If, if we're right, that these differences between the left and right or whatever we want to label them are pretty basic, that they, they, it's not that they're unchangeable, but they're very difficult to change and they run to our, our biological structure. Then I think we have to accept that and, and not, you know, maybe there could be a little bit more tolerance as a result. And I hope I'm not being too naive here, but if I look at my political opponents and say, you know, it's not just that they haven't thought about the issues right or they're listening to the wrong news outlet or they're just being lazy, but rather, you know, maybe they've paid attention, but they're paying attention to different things than I am that they, that they, they could be paying attention to the same thing, but they have a different, different perception of that. I'm hopeful that if we have that attitude, maybe we can, you know, take this whole hyperbole down a notch and just say, yeah, you know, it's unfortunate. We're really different, but I have to accept that. Um, and maybe we can find some some solution in the middle, not because we both think that's right, but because we know that the other side isn't going away. You know, this has happened. This increased tolerance has happened with regard to things like sexual orientation. People who believe that, that there's a biological basis of sexual orientation are much more tolerant than those people who think it's just environmental. Same thing with handedness. My dad was left-handed, and he got beat on the hand with a ruler when he was a kid because they thought it was he was being lazy or he had the devil in him or something, and that they could beat this out of him. Now we know it's not, and the people are much more tolerant about being left-handed or right-handed. So uh, we have this silly and naive hope, but uh, maybe it's more than that, that, that if we could get people to see politics in the same light, that maybe we'd be a little bit more tolerant and, and there'd be a greater opportunity for compromise. Well, I think that's a wonderful note to end on. And uh, I'm with you on that. So, uh, John Hibbing, thanks so much for being with us on Inquiring Minds. This was fun, Chris. You had great questions. So, I have to say, I nearly fell off my chair when you quoted Iolanthe. Oh, 
Wow, it's right here in the wall. We should say we're in San Francisco recording yeah. where you record. We're never in the same place. We are now. And you actually have, you yes. were in it. That's you. That's, That's you me. in the picture. That's wow. me. So in, in my home studio, just for you listeners, there is a poster of me in Iolanthe playing Iolanthe um, at the Montgomery Theater in San Jose a number of years ago. Uh, and so, yeah, the fact that you, you were the one that quoted Gilbert and Sullivan on this show, uh, I feel it's just, you know, you had 27 wrong. opportunities. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, and you, you quoted it exactly right. It is pronounced conservative. Conservative. And, uh, <laughs> that's some of the jokes that they make. Um, but the other thing I found really fascinating um, was the fact that he was using eye tracking, which I think, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a method I've actually used in some of my own research, and it can be really compelling. Um, so it's really interesting that, you know, we think about these these differences in belief systems as being very much you know, in the very early stages of the way our brain processes inf information, right? Way before we've done any kind of top-down processing, already there's an influence in the way that we perceive the world. Right. You know, there's, it's the the time of, because I read this study, the time toward, to, until first fixation on the scary images is much, conservatives are much faster, and then the dwell time, they stay longer. And they don't know that they don't know they're doing it, right? That's the that's the amazing thing. And so I just wonder if I was going through the world, walking down a street, and I was actually just slightly different, how would that affect my ideology? I think it might end up building into something significant. So I think that this research is fascinating. Yeah, and you know, if it's if there's a genetic component, of course, it also brings up the whole chicken and the egg problem, right? So how much of it really is the you know the 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 environment in which these genes are expressed versus just you know. Can you have a, a mutation in a number of genes that, you know, puts you into one of these frameworks? Who knows? But it's certainly basic things involving, I guess, alertness to threats in the environment. I mean, it's a very, very basic thing. I guess you would see why you might have variation in that or just um, variation that might just occur and it could build into something pretty large. And one more last comment. I always also love the fact that he did underscore the fact that even since Darwin, we've known that behavior is genetically influenced, right? It's uh, because, of course, the way you behave can lead to more or less survival rates. Right. This is where the real I'm waiting for the breakthrough is in some of this evolutionary psychological understanding of why you have this political diversity. I mean, I think that's where I'm still waiting for the explanation that puts everything into context and makes it all make sense. And he, you know, Hibbing confesses that we don't really know. We have some ideas. But uh, I think something interesting is still coming there. Cool. So that's it for another episode. And I want to thank you all for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. You can find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show, on Facebook at Slash Inquiring Minds Podcast. And you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. That's inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. Once again, this episode was sponsored by the International Rescue Committee, providing medical care, clean water, education, and other assistance to millions uprooted by crisis in Syria, South Sudan, and around the world. Join Rescue Partners, the IRC's monthly giving program, and receive a tote bag. Learn more at rescue.org. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration that includes The Atlantic, the Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate, Wired, and The Huffington Post. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan, and we're your hosts. I'm Chris Mooney. And I'm Indre Viscontis.
BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.